Okay, let's read together from the text of Scripture this morning and we'll give our attention to the study of it for the next few moments. Verse number 32 picks up our narrative. We're in the Passion Week. We're on Friday morning. Jesus has stood before Pilate. Barabbas has been released. Jesus has been turned over to crucifixion, beaten and mocked by the soldiers. And now we come to the darkest moments in our Savior's life and we come to the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan. As they, that is Jesus and the soldiers, went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, They divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. These are the words of God for our study this morning. Father, help us now as we study Your Word. May Your Spirit run freely, give us understanding, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to respond. May we be freshly aware of the marvel of the sacrifice of Your Son. Keep us from familiarity and the 
the work of apathy as we study this text. Smash in on our hearts with your word, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. As we come to this portion of the Passion Narrative, we are perhaps in the most familiar territory in Matthew chapter 27. And with that comes the most potential, the greatest temptation for indifference on our parts as God's people. There are a few things that we can observe as we study this text that breed in us a lack of awareness for what we're studying or perhaps um, missing the response that should flow from us as we study this portion of the narrative that Matthew gives us under the direction of the Spirit. Some things about this text are so unique to this text and to this context that they're lost on us. Uh, For instance, everything that's happening in this text is lost on us culturally. Nothing that is described here is familiar to us because we have experienced it. None of us have seen a Roman guard take and crucify another human being. None of us have an awareness of the sense of what is happening as three individuals are crucified together on a hill. Somewhere where we've never been and never experienced. The agony that Jesus is suffering is lost on us. We have no first-hand recognition of what is taking place. Furthermore, the, the description that Matthew provides in writing to a Jewish readership and the original readers of this would have had a, a, a deep and abiding grasp of the Old Testament, that as well is often lost on us as Gentile believers and New Testament Christians. Sadly, we're unaware of the nuances and of the references that are made to the Old Testament. So there are some things about this text that have that have drawn us away from the text and that in and of itself is a difficulty that we must overcome we need to come back to the text right the message of today in most evangelical churches is we need to get the text and bring it somehow make it relevant to today the text is eternally relevant because this is god's eternal word we need for the sake of understanding it to get ourselves back into an understanding of what's taking place here so that we then can rightly appreciate What's happening? Some things, as we come to this text, have not changed. What has not changed is the cultural scenario that surrounds this text. And the ludicrousy of this text being the place where God is exalting His Son. Exaltation, uh, supremacy, primacy preeminence in anyone has not changed as as a cultural understanding the primary means of exalting another individual or one being exalted is not suffering is not sacrifice is not death at the hands of a, a roman guard is not torture and humiliation and silence in the face of charges Preeminence in our culture, not unlike their culture, is won by the strongest, by the one that can overcome the most, the one who can argue out of the most circumstances, who can weasel and manipulate his will to be accomplished. 
So what's taking place here is the the preeminence of Jesus being established. The exaltation of the Son of God. Matthew is recording this because he believes that this testifies to the kingly lordship of Jesus Christ over His people. He believes that this proves and provides evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. That He is the King of Heaven. And that He must be worshipped as such. So we today, just like Jesus' executioners and the crowd of onlookers, apart from His followers, no preeminence to be gained through victory, power, authority, status. All of which have been lost on Jesus. He has shown no power and He will not show power. He has shown no authority in this suffering and He will show no authority in this suffering apart from the giving, the yielding of His Spirit. But we have the privilege this morning of knowing what is taking place. Because we've read the end of the story. Jesus is being crucified on this, the day of days, according to the sovereign eternal plan of the Father. For the purpose of rescuing, redeeming, and adopting Sons and daughters from sin. To be a people called out for His own namesake. So the record of what is taking place from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on a Friday a couple of thousand years ago. The impact of this is not lost on us. Because what's taking place here is the centerpiece of, of human history. Of God's redemptive plan. And therefore it must be the centerpiece of our human existence. If there's a big idea, a theme that that I believe encompasses this portion of the Passion, the actual death of Christ, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus, it's that the excruciating pain of the cross established the preeminence of Christ. The excruciating pain of the cross established the preeminence of Christ. In other words, the, the ultimate weakness of Christ was establishing the ultimate power of Christ. Why? Because it culminated the sinless obedience of Christ. The excruciating pain of the cross established the preeminence of Jesus because at the cross, in the pain, Jesus was fulfilling, completing His perfect obedience to His Father. Say, how do we understand this? Well, Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9, you can listen as I read these verses to you. They speak directly to Matthew's purpose, I believe, in recording this narrative. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, verse number 9, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Master, is King to the glory of God the Father. So before we see the details of the death of Christ at the cross, Let's be reminded that the excruciating pain of the cross established the preeminence of Jesus because 
Because it was the fulfillment, the completion, it culminated the complete, sinless obedience of Jesus to His Father's will. This is no accident. This is no tragedy. This is the greatest expression of love that could ever be known. Jesus obeying His Father, giving His life. The Father crushing His Son and judging Him in wrath for our sin makes way for us to have the righteousness of Jesus, that obedience transferred to our accounts and our sin transferred to His account. Therefore, He has a name that is above every other name. Therefore, He is the King of every king. He is the Lord of every Lord. There is no one like our Lord Jesus. So, in this narrative, we'll divide this up with three distinct angles Angles from which to view the painful path toward preeminence in Jesus' death. So there are three distinct angles, there are three distinct truths about what is happening here that help us fill out the exaltation of Jesus in His death. This is is a terrifying account. And as we come back to the, the, the historical context... I trust God will work in our hearts to bring us back to a full appreciation of what is happening here. Jesus is the King because He suffered at the cross. All for the glory of His Father and the preeminence of His name. So, angle number one, Jesus is King because He suffered personally. Jesus suffered personally. There's a personal personal component to what's happening at the cross. There's a personal element to what's taking place here that if we are so familiar with this that we, we, we miss this personal element, we are, we are at a loss for appreciating what is really taking place. So in verse number 32 to verse number 44, we observe the personal suffering of Jesus which resulted in Him being exalted as King and Lord of all. Verse 32 begins with the... Soldiers leading Jesus out, choosing Simon of Cyrenian de- descent. I, I don't know about you, I grew up in the church. I, I'm, I'm a second generation Christian. And my mom and dad were first generation believers. And, and we went to a church where there was a song that we sang occasionally. And if you, if you were a part of this culture, uh, I'm not saying this was exciting or redeemable stuff. But there was a song that we sang that talked about the choosing of Simon and the whole song was like a story song it was built around these two little boys that came with their dad to the Passover it's just Ray Boltz let's get it out there okay Ray Boltz sang this song um, these two little boys and and what happens is their dad is Simon and he's chosen to carry the cross so Simon is picked and there is great implication in that he carries the cross beam for Jesus the Romans would make the prisoner carry the beam that went across the, the cross. And, and this is one of three varieties of a cross that the Romans used. They used a cross like this one. They used one that looked like a capital T. And they used one that looked like a capital X. I'm stretching the victim in an X formation. The capital T would tie the victim to the top so their body would pull against. And this particular version of the cross is likely the kind that Jesus was crucified on because it was used to nail the prisoner with his head situated in a place where a plaque could be put above him with his charge. 
So this crossbeam was carried by Simon, and they went to the hill called Golgotha. This is a personal suffering account that ends in verse number 44 with the robbers alongside of Jesus reviling him along with all others involved. So let's see, first of all, the personal suffering in unbelieving brutality. We find this in verse number 32 and onward. In verse 32, let's not forget there's a reason why Simon the Cyrene is asked, compelled, he's not asked, They didn't pull the audience. They didn't come up and ask him. They compelled him as Roman soldiers to carry the cross of Jesus. That's because the body of Jesus is so badly abused by this point. The brutality has been so severe that likely he will not live to Golgotha if he has to carry his own crossbeam. His back is shredded. His face is marred to the point where he's unrecognizable. His beard has been ripped out by hand. His head is bleeding profusely because of being struck with the mock reed on top of the thorns that were crushed into his skull. Jesus is almost dead before this even begins. He is suffering unbelievable brutality at the hands of these soldiers. This is further evidenced by what took place when they reached Golgotha. Notice what happens in verse number 33. They come to the place, and in verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Most likely, this is some kind of of narcotic added to the wine. This is something that would momentarily and only slightly dull the senses so that the prisoner could be held down to nail his body to pieces of wood. This is extreme brutality. Don't find mercy in the wine. There is no mercy. This wine is offered only to potentially help the prisoner cooperate. But Jesus would have none of it. He would bear the full wrath of God and he would experience every last moment of this personal suffering. This real, human, excruciating, brutal suffering. Verse number 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them, casting lots. We read those first words when they crucified him and we we move right past it. We think of a painting in the story Bible. We think of something where Jesus is delicately wrapped with a loincloth covering his secret places. We see him looking very much like a strong and strapping young man who has been beaten at some level. And we have no appreciation For what is happening here. Perhaps we have Mel Gibson's version of what crucifixion is. And we have a movie reel that is running through our minds. But even what Mel Gibson presented could not capture the personal suffering of Jesus. Resulting in his exaltation as king. Crucifixion was created by the Romans out of the imagination of how to most painfully and prolonged 
the, the most severe way to make someone die all the while regretting their own death. Jesus was nailed in both His wrists and His feet. His bones were never broken. So nails were put through spaces where bones did not exist. That's through the two bones of His wrists. Holding Him in that position required that He push upon the nails that were holding His ankles into the wood to get air into His lungs. He's sagging against nails. He has to push Himself up. And when His strength no longer can push His body up, He suffocates. Fluid fills his lungs. His heart explodes as fluid builds around the sack. And water and blood pour out of his side. Brothers and sisters, this this really happened. Jesus really suffered this slow suffocation while his nerves were screaming in agony. The Romans were so maniacal in their, in their devising of crucifixion that they even knew nerve points to put ex- an, an especially painful experience onto their victims. And this was intended to last a long time. Crucifixions were put on hills like Golgotha because they were a, to, to scare as much as they were to punish. Jesus was naked. He was removed of all of His clothing. There is no evidence that lets us in that the, that into the idea that the Romans somehow um, capitulated to the Jewish sensibilities and covered Jesus with a loincloth. Romans crucified people naked to humiliate them while they struggled for life hanging from a piece of wood for the final hours of their existence. This brutality was poured out on Jesus. And in this weakness, and in this suffering, and in every wheezing, agonizing push against the nails to get another breath of air, He was the King of ages, and He would be exalted. He not only suffered personally with the brutality of His death, but in the unbelieving mockery that accompanied His death. This scene is so beyond us, It's sickening to our Western sensibilities. But there were people gathered around this blood-soaked cross and this disturbing, naked individual who is not even looking like a human being, who is struggling for every breath of air. People gathered around and they mocked Him. He was mocked by the soldiers. Humiliated by his nakedness, they drew straws to see who got his coat. Then his undergarment, which would have been another gown that was worn underneath. Any possession that Jesus had was traded and divided amongst the soldiers, fulfilling prophecy and completely rendering the victim inhumane. They further mocked him by stamping what Pilate had told them to stamp above his head. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The irony is thick. And if you've read Scandalous, our our resource that we provided for you from D.A. Carson, you recognize the irony of what is happening. They identified him as the King of the Jews, and he is. 
they saw at the cross an opportunity to laugh and to say, this is a powerful king, look at what he's doing, and this was a powerful king, this is the eternal powerful king who is laying down his own life in obedience to his father. He was mocked by the people, centered on the propaganda and the trumped-up charges that the leaders had given them. The people came by and mocked Jesus along with the soldiers. They derided him, wagging their heads sarcastically and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, verse number 40, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. I can't fathom the kind of callous response to this human suffering that exists in this narrative. We have grown up completely apart from this. We've grown up where American soldiers are drugged naked through the streets behind a vehicle after they've died, and we got sick to our stomachs. We have never experienced this level of personal suffering in any human being. And yet this is exactly what our Lord was suffering. And He is our Lord. He is King. Jesus suffered at the hands of the mockery from soldiers, from the people, and from the leaders. The Sanhedrin is there. This is their moment of triumph. Here on the feast day, Jesus is dying and they are mocking Him. And enjoying every moment with their hollow, hateful, final hypocrisy of offering to believe if he'll simply do one more sign. Acknowledging his power to save others, to redeem others, to bring Lazarus from the dead. Claiming he's the king of Israel. But only validating that if he'll come down now from the cross. They say in verse number 43 that Jesus trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. But God would not deliver him and Jesus would not request it. He never cried out for the angels. He never cried out for release because he is there. The humiliated king who will be exalted because he suffered personally. The final mockery is the worst. Matthew has no Concern for the redemption of one of the fellow crucified on that day. He simply records in verse 44 that the robbers who were crucified also reviled him. We have the benefit of the gospel narratives helping fill out this story and knowing that at least one of those, and only one of those, responded after hours of watching what was happening and the response of Jesus. He cries out for mercy and is granted mercy. Jesus saves from the cross. Matthew's intention is to simply pile up in our understanding how severe this circumstance was. The people dying on either side of him who likely were tied to their crosses, Jesus being the centerpiece and being the exalted one at this crucifixion. Those robbers also join. Those common criminals who deserve to die join in their reviling of the one who deserved none of this. 
This suffering by a Savior King, the Savior King, was real, physical, and psychological suffering. Jesus was oppressed by the mockery. He was oppressed by the excruciating brutality. He was suffering in every way. Do not think, Jesus is God. This was just a sham. This was a show. He didn't feel it. He didn't know what was happening. He didn't receive the mockery. He knew the end, so he wasn't experiencing the moment. Jesus was suffering personally. This is the God-man setting aside his rights to his divine divine power he came and obeyed to death even this death and therefore he is exalted to a name that is above every name jesus suffered this personal pain on behalf of personal redemption and adoption for us as sinners who repent and believe that's the first angle that reminds us that the excruciating pain of the cross established the preeminence of Christ because it culminated his complete sinless obedience. Second angle is that Jesus is king because he suffered spiritually. Jesus suffered personally and he suffered spiritually. Verse number 45 continues the narrative now about the sixth hour, that's noon. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Lord Jesus spends the final three hours of His life in darkness as a visual representation of the wrath and judgment that was taking place to the spiritual reality of what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. The sun lost its ability to shine. This is no three-hour eclipse. This is God removing from the sun its shining capacity, even as He crushed and forsook His own Son. And Jesus responds because He understands what is taking place in the darkness. The people may not have been able to see Him well, but they could hear Him because He screamed these words in Aramaic. Even these words in Aramaic are familiar. I can say them without mispronouncing them because I've been saying them and hearing them since I was old enough to hear and say anything. But what is happening here is the Son of God is crying out to His Father because His Father has placed upon Him the curse for my sin. He is bearing not the turning away of a father who cannot look at his son suffering. He's experiencing the turning away of an enemy who is pouring out his wrath on one that he won't even dignify by looking at him. Don't read sympathy into these these words. Jesus is bearing an utter rejection from his father. The mystery of this is beyond us. The Trinity is here expressed with forsaking and rejection and separation. Jesus is bearing your wrath. This is yours. 
This is mine. We deserve to have God never look at us and to pour out judgment upon us. We have sinned. We have erred. We have broken His standard. We've wandered away. We do what's right in our own eyes. We don't seek Him. We hate Him. He bears the wrath. We know the grace. The wonder of what is taking place is bound up in the question from Jesus. Why have you forsaken me? This is the lowest point of spiritual agony in the life of Jesus. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53, when Isaiah describes God crushing His suffering servant. Did the Romans nail Him to the cross? Yes. Did the Jews betray Him and call for His crucifixion? Yes. Did Jesus then therefore die because humans ordained that He die? No. He was crushed by His Father, forsaken for us. The substitutionary suffering by Jesus was a substitutionary cursing and crushing by the Father for the sake of exalting His Son by making Him the Savior of sinful humanity. He is King because He suffered this spiritual suffering. Some of the bystanders heard what He said and thought He was yelling for Elijah. You'll remember that Elijah was caught up. He never died. He was caught up into the heavens. So he was known amongst the Jews as one who at times would come back and restore life for one who is dying. And so they hear Jesus say, Eli, Eli, in Aramaic, and assume that he's crying out for Elijah. One of the people runs to grab a sponge so that they can hear Jesus more clearly. Likely they give him sour wine. They put it on a reed to give him something to drink. This likely is a moment of sympathy from one in the crowd, but the others, filled with with lust for more, tell him not to give it to him, to wait. Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Caught up in the spectacle, they withhold from him even another, uh, uh, another few moments of life to enjoy this crucifixion. Jesus was suffering spiritually in our place. Verse 50 says, He cried out again. We know from the collected gospel record that He cried out, It is finished. He had done what He came to do, and He yielded up His spirit. There's a group of singers, a band called Cademan's Call, that sings a song and. My wife loves to listen to them sing. I only really like this one song, so I'm going to share it with you this morning. It's called Mystery of Mercy, and in the chorus, they flip these words around, and the chorus says, My God, my God, why hast thou accepted me? When all my love was vinegar to a thirsty king. My God, my God, why hast thou accepted me? It's a mystery of mercy, and the song that I sing. You made the seed 
that made the tree, that made the cross, that saved me. You gave me hope when there was none. You gave me only your son. The excruciating pain of the cross established the preeminence of Christ because it culminated the complete sinless obedience of Christ toward the Father. Third angle. Jesus is king because he suffered personally. He suffered spiritually. And finally, in verses 51 through 56, Jesus is king because he suffered victoriously. He not only suffered personal anguish, he also suffered spiritual anguish under the curse of the Father. But all of this was not, was not lost. This was victorious suffering. Verse 50 begins that that, that verse number 50 begins that victory cry because Jesus cries out, it is finished, and yielded up His Spirit. Matthew turns the verbs to, to help us as readers and students of Scripture to know that this was Christ giving His life. His life was not stolen from Him. He didn't die too young. His life wasn't cut short. He gave His life. Jesus, having yielded up His Spirit, had victoriously accomplished the plan of the Father to give His own Son as a perfect Lamb who would die in the place of sinners so that they would never die. He dies so that we never die. He suffers so that we never suffer the condemnation poured out upon Him. Verse 51 picks up the victory theme and says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The victory of Jesus is first seen in the curtain being torn. I I believe the best understanding of all of what is taking place in verse number 51 and 52 is that the earth shaking and the rocks splitting is the hinge upon which the first and the last part operate. So you have the tearing of the curtain and you have the raising from the dead, the tombs being opened, and those happen because or through the earthquake that takes place at the final breath of Christ. The earth is shaking, rocks are splitting, and the results are a curtain torn from top to bottom and tombs opened. Now that does not remove the miraculous implication of what actually took place as this earthquake happens. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple was no longer a building. The access to God was no longer restricted in personal communion with God to the high priest who could once a year go into the Holy of Holies and only went in with a rope tied to their waist and bells on their garment so that if they went in with sin and died, they could be pulled out. Because to go into the presence of God and to not be a high priest was instant death. And to go in as a high priest bearing some sin that had not been atoned for by the death of another was to die. And the curtain has now been torn. Access is free. Priesthood is for all who are in Christ. This is the theme and message of 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 4. Jesus was dying and suffering victoriously. Hebrews chapter 10 sheds 
important light on this. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19. You can listen as I read this for us. Hebrews 10, if you jot that down, come back to Hebrews 10, which fills so much out in our understanding of the Old Testament significance of the cross. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus now is the curtain through which we enter into communion with our Creator. There is no longer a physical curtain in a physical temple. Those who are in Christ have now had access open to them through the curtain that is His body bleeding and sacrificed for us. This is victory in the suffering of King Jesus. There was victory in the raising of dead people at the death of Christ. This story is is one that's beyond our comprehension. But as the earth shook and the rocks split in the darkness, tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. They were alive in there. And three days later, when Jesus is resurrected, they accompany Him in coming in and being seen by others. The sign of the kind of victory that had just been won at the cross was immediately illustrated in the first responders to the death of Jesus. Those who came from the tomb saying, what just took place happened to grant life to dead people. Resurrection is the victorious implication of the death of Christ. He dies so that we might live. These are the first responders, the very first ones to illustrate the power of what was happening at the cross. Death was being conquered and would be culminated in His resurrection a mere three days later. They were tasting. They were tasting the power of the cross. And they, along with us who are in Christ, will join the heavenly chorus and sing, Worthy is the Lamb. The one who died, who yielded up his spirit, who suffered physically and spiritually, who bore the curse and the forsaking wrath of God upon himself in our place. This was the story of their testimony, like their brother in Christ, Lazarus. Jesus died victoriously. His heel was bruised, but he was crushing the serpent's head. He was not defeated at the cross. God's plan was not being thwarted at the cross. Rather, as He gave His life and suffered the Father's curse upon Him, Jesus was winning eternal inheritance for you and I. Brothers and sisters, this is our hope. One has suffered for us so that we might experience the joy and blessing that uniquely Belongs to Him. So the excruciating pain of the cross established the preeminence of Christ because it culminated the complete sinless obedience of Christ. And finally, there's a conclusion to all of this. There is, for those who are unbelieving, 
and who have been granted eyes to see and ears to hear repentance and faith. There is one centurion, one of the soldiers, who had blood spatter on his garments because of how close he was to these events. Verse 54 says, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and took place, they were filled with awe and said, This, truly, this was the Son of God. So if you're here or under the sound of my voice this morning and you have never found access to God through the death and resurrection of Christ, look upon the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, because He is the King who is the Son of God who is giving His life. And if you will repent and believe, He bears your sin at this cross and grants you righteousness from His perfect obedience so that you might stand in the presence of God. There's a second group that's here in verse 55 and 56. The many women. They're going to come back into the story because they're going to care for the dead body of Jesus. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Mary, or the mother, rather, of the sons of Zebedee. These ladies followed, and we, like them, must look at the cross in believing, understanding, worship. There are only two responses recorded here. There's this group of ladies who are standing off at a distance. Perhaps Matthew can see them. Perhaps Matthew's near them. But he's close enough to know and, and, and to hear the, the centurions who are, who are with one another at the foot of the cross watching over Jesus so that no one runs to His rescue. There's belief from unbelief. There were people saved at the cross. And every one of us who is in Christ knows this same reality. Truly, this was the Son of God. And for those of us who are in Christ, there is every need to look upon Christ at the cross again. To be freshly moved by the cross. Here's why. Because the victorious suffering of King Jesus is to be witnessed in us. Let me say that again. The the victorious suffering of Jesus is to be witnessed in us. God has called us to the stand. And the jury is the world in which we live. And we are, to, we are to recount with our lives the victorious suffering that was personal and spiritual and real in the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This one victory over sin and death. We have eternal life, John 17.3, which is to know God. We have a curtain of the, the, the body given by Christ that allows us access into the presence of God. Are, are we... Witnesses of this victorious death, we must look at the cross and be reminded of the truth of the cross and the victory of the cross if we are to apply that victory in our daily witness before the world. So let me ask you this one question to leave our time of study 
reflecting upon here in the text. How is the victory of the suffering of the cross evidenced in your life on a daily basis? Is victory over sin's power? Is victory over death that won a relationship with God, the Creator of the universe, who is holy in all His ways, who is mighty in all of His deeds? Is is that victory witnessed in your life in such a way that it brings veracity to the Gospel message? Do you say there is victory in the cross if you will come to Christ, if you will leave your own way? And turn to Christ and believe what you cannot see, that He is this suffering Son of God, substituting Himself for sinners. If if you say that, does your life back that? Make that more believable? Do you apply this victory in such a way as to validate, to bring veracity to the claim of the Gospel? The excruciating pain of the cross established the preeminence of Christ because it culminated the complete, sinless obedience of Christ to His Father. This is our Lord at the cross. We won't leave this. David will teach next week and bring the implications of the cross. I'm going to come back and finish the month at the cross. We're going to come back. But let us be reminded that the personal spiritual suffering of Jesus was a victorious suffering for sinners. And let's remember that together this morning. Father, it is our joy now to turn our attention from Your Word to the activity that Your Word commands of us as a reminder, as a spiritual alarm clock that startles us back to to recognizing what was taking place as a body was given and broken and as blood was shed. May this time of remembrance as we do it together be for Your glory as we are renewed in our thinking. May our minds be consumed again with the Gospel. For the glory of Your name we ask in the name of the suffering servant who is victorious in his death and has been raised victorious in life so that we might now commune with you. Jesus, our Savior and King, we pray. Amen.